Father, we're so very grateful that we can come together to worship you through the teaching of your word this evening. We're thankful that we have your word. We're thankful for the insights that it gives us, for the comfort that it gives us, that no matter what we're going through in life, we know that that, uh, you have a plan and a purpose and that there's no testing taken us but such as is common to man, but you will with... uh, you will make a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. And, Father, we pray that you might give us the confidence in your word to claim these promises and to trust you. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are facing uh, significant illness, and we pray especially for Jim Burney and his recovery and for Norris as she takes care of him and guidance and direction there. And we also pray for Jim Myers as he's just returned back to uh, Kiev and getting established there, getting ready for the semester which starts uh, next week. Father, we pray for us as we study your word this evening that you would challenge us with what we study and that we might be comforted as we uh, dig out these principles from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, looking at God's sovereign plan. Now, Romans 9 is one of those uh, gritty little passages in the New Testament that people often misunderstand. And we go to passages like this often with some sort of preconceived notion because we think, and this has been true of Christians down through the ages, that that everything God talks about in the Bible somehow has to do with salvation. And that's just not true. Many passages that are uh, that are in the scriptures sometimes are talking about the spiritual life. Sometimes they're talking about God's plan for Israel, God's plan for the church. They're not focused on individual salvation or justification. They're focused on um, they're focused on a, a, maybe a corporate plan, which is what Romans nine is addressing: God's corporate plan for Israel, God's plan for the nation Israel. Nothing in Romans nine to eleven, with the exception of a couple of things in Romans ten, talk. Uh, about individual justification or or personal salvation. What we see is a tremendous discourse in these three chapters related to comforting believers about God's plan for Israel, that God hasn't gone back on his word, God hasn't uh, forgotten his promise, that no matter what, how things may look in life in regard to Israel, how chaotic things might be, God is true to his word and true to his promise. We just don't always see how that's working out at any particular moment. That's the context, and we've been studying that. And I want to review uh, a little bit about what we're reading here. Uh, so we, if we lose context here, it's real easy to start taking things out of the context and misinterpreting some of these passages. Romans 9.6 starts talking about, God's promise. That's what the Word of God means here. It's not talking about the Word of God, capital W, in the sense of the Bible, but it's talking about the promise of God, the promise that God made to Abraham. But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. In other words, he's saying it's not that God's promise has failed. The word there, taken no effect, really means to fall or to break. It's not that God's Word has been broken. For they, and that's an explanation, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So we have one sentence stated there, nor additional information. Are they all children? Key word, we looked at these last time, the difference between children and seed. Children refers to a special subgroup referring to those who are children of the promise the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not enough to be a physical descendant of Abraham because he had descendants through Ishmael, grandsons through Esau, and six sons through uh, uh, Keturah. These are, not, these are physical descendants, the seed of Abraham, but they're not the children of promise. So he's talking about two groups. One has to do with the spiritual distinction between uh, ethnic Israel and those who are true Israel in that they are regenerate. They have believed in the promise of Jesus as the Messiah. That's verse 6. Verse 7 is talking about an additional issue defining 
who are the, phys- the, the physical line of blessing? Who does that describe? Now, let's just summarize this. I have eight points of summary here. First of all, he's saying that the word of God, that is the promise of God to Abraham, has not failed. That's the first part of verse 6. God is true to his word. He promised unconditionally by binding only himself to the covenant with Abraham certain blessings to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would be more numerable than the stars in the heavens, and that through his descendants all the nations would be blessed. And that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, salvation to all the nations, not just to Israel. That's the first part of verse 6. Why can he say this? That's the explanation that comes in the, in the, in the second part of the verse, beginning 4, which is a, often used to give a cause or reason for something. Why can he say this? The reason he can say that God hasn't broken his promise is because not all who have descended from Israel, that is from Jacob, Israel was Jacob's uh, name that given to him by God, not all who are physically descended from Israel are necessarily spiritual regenerate because Paul is working at, is operating at a time when there's a, a, a massive rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by, by the Jews. And so the question is, well, is God just going to sort of throw uh, the, the Jews on the rubbish pile of history because they've rejected Jesus? And, and Paul is saying no. There's going to be a shift, a change. There's going to be some divine discipline. But God is not permanently setting Israel aside. He will fulfill his promises. So what he is saying in verse 7 is that in addition to the fact that not all Israel is regenerate, not all Israel is spiritually saved. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Not all Israel is uh, regenerate. Not all who are physical descendants of Abraham are Abraham's uh, children. The word for physical descendants is the Greek word sperma, and that covers all of his descendants, Ishmael, Esau, the six sons of Keturah. But there's a special term for those who are the children of the promise, and that's the plural form of technon, which is techna in 9.7. Okay, so 9.7 reads, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. They are not all the special children, that is the line of descent, because they are of the physical seed, physically related to Abraham. Then in verse 4, he, we, under point 4, we, I, we summarize it. The children of the flesh, that is Ishmael, the six, and Ishmael, the six sons of Keturah, also Esau, uh, as the six sons of Keturah mentioned in Genesis 25, 1 through 4. Children of the flesh are children of Abraham, but were not of the promised or selected line through the seed Abraham, uh, Isaac. This is really important. You just, we have to work our way carefully here because almost every commentator that I read, with a few exceptions, but many of them are assuming that this is about salvation or justification, and so they immediately assume that, that the children of God equals equals the regenerate, but that doesn't make sense in the context. So the phrase, point number five, as we saw last time, the phrase children of God is not the same as regenerate. They're called children of God because God worked supernaturally in the wombs of the the matriarchs of Israel, Sarah, Rebekah, and Rachel, so that they would become pregnant because they were each barren. And so there had to be a supernatural interference by God in order to uh, uh, energize their wombs. So children of God is not referring to a regenerate child of God, but God's supernatural bringing forth of these, these children to indicate that God is involved in giving birth to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel. So six, we see that to be a simply a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't qualify for the line of blessing. One had to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. That's the foundation. Now, 
The second illustration, dealing with God's sovereign plan of history here, that's what we're dealing with. God's sovereign plan for Israel, not personal regeneration, but that God as the sovereign God has the right to direct history and to bestow blessings on whom he will bestow blessings, not salvation. He's not picking people who's going to be saved, who's not going to be saved. That's often what people read into this. The second illustration that God's sovereign is, is that God's sovereign plan for the covenant line of Abraham is determined by God who knows best. I want to say that again. The second illustration that comes up here in terms of uh, 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 selecting Jacob over Esau is to show that God has the right, God's sovereign plan, God has the right to make a plan and he, for the covenant line of Abraham, the promise of the blessing, and it's determined by God who knows best. So that brings in two aspects of God's character. So often when you hear the Calvinist line, the Reformed line, this is all about God's sovereign choice. They ignore other aspects of God's character. But what what um, what we see in the, in the Scripture is that God's all of God's essence is involved in His planning. He elects according to foreknowledge, His knowledge of things ahead of time, according to First uh, Peter one two. Elect according to foreknowledge. And so his omniscience comes into play. Uh, the issue here in, in Romans 9 is God's righteousness. So God's righteousness and his justice comes into play. All of God's character comes into play in his determining the course of history. So uh, this second illustration that Paul uses here in terms of the selection of the line of Jacob over Esau which it's based not on their works, it's not based on regeneration, it's based on that God on some basis, and we know that must be his knowledge of how things will work out, uh, plans and executes a course of action. It doesn't determine who's going to be saved or who's not going to be saved. It's not a matter of, of predestination to eternal life or eternal condemnation. It has to do with outworking of God's plan in history. Thus, under point number eight, God's plan for the nations, including Israel, is based on his grace and his decision, not on the individual or their works. The focus here is on nations. As we saw with Esau, when God spoke to uh, Rebekah, when Rebekah's pregnant with twins and they're fighting in the womb, she's saying, what's going on here? And God says, there are two nations fighting within you. The, per, the, the perspective there is not on them as individuals, but on their descendants. And he says the older will serve the younger. Well, that didn't happen in the life of Jacob or Esau. It happened in terms of the historical development, outworking of those two nations. So what we, one of the things we understand here is, as Paul introduces these illustrations, one is related to the choice of, <clears throat> he uses these il- illustrations to to help us understand that God has the right to determine how and when and who he blesses because he understands all the data. He, he knows everything there is to know. There's nothing that he's going to miss, so he has the right and the authority to choose whom he will choose to bless and when he will bless them and how he will bless them. And so this is the focus on this illustration. It's a reminder to us of the principle stated in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, where God is speaking. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. God's thinking, his, his knowledge is based on infinite knowledge. God's knowledge is he, he never learns anything. He knows everything. He never acquires knowledge. He's never surprised by anything. He's always known everything. His knowledge is immediate, intuitive, and direct. It's never added to or subtracted from. We can't comprehend any of that. But our knowledge is a finite representation of his knowledge in that we come to learn things. We don't know things comprehensively, but we can know things truly. We can know things accurately. 
So God's thoughts are not our thoughts. There's an analogy between our thinking and God's thinking. It's not, but they're different, but not so different that we can't comprehend uh, the idea of God's knowledge or God's thinking at all. There's a, there's a point of, of analogy. So God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my, my ways your ways. This is one of the problems in the whole Calvinist approach to election and God's sovereignty of history is they're taking our empirical understanding of causation within our experience and extrapolating that to causation in terms of God's causation of human history. But the terms are, are analogous and not equivalent. So God's the way God causes things to happen is not the way we perceive causation to work in, in our experience. So that in our experience, we think of causation in terms of if I wanted to cause you to do something, I would have to uh, overcome your will. I would have to somehow control your will. And I would have to impose my will upon you. And so we extrapolate that that's basically what God does in his sovereign choice is he imposes his will upon human beings. And yet that runs counter to the way the scriptures continuously emphasize individual human responsibility or volition. Volition is just a larger word for will, and it has a broader range of meaning emphasizing individual accountability. And yet when we read this passage in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, if we look at the context, there's an emphasis on human volition. You just go back two verses, and there's a command to seek the Lord while he may be found. Israel's commanded, in the, even in the midst of their disobedience, even in the midst of their rebellion, even in the midst of their rejection of God and their idolatry, God comes to them and offers them a way to turn back, seek the Lord. As an imperative, that is addressed to the individual uh, volition of each person. They have a responsibility to, and they're accountable for responding to that command. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Notice the uh, synonymous parallelism there, seeking and calling upon him are, are comparable synonymous terms. And they are both are directed at the individual will of each person. So that uh, God is not overpowering people and saying, okay, I've selected this group over here for salvation and this group over here for condemnation. There, each person has a responsibility to respond to the message, and you're accountable for that. And that's the seventh verse, let the wicked forsake his way. It's a real option that people have. They can reject uh, God or they can accept God. They can forsake their, their rebelliousness, and they can turn to the Lord. And what happens at the end of that verse? Let him return to the Lord, and he, God, will have mercy on him, and to our and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. So there's a real offer of grace to those who turn to God. Now that's important. Keep that in mind because we're getting ready to get into one of those really difficult passages. It's, uh, we won't get to get there tonight, but the passage dealing with God hardening Pharaoh's heart, and that's one of those great passages people. Uh, distort a lot that that make it sound and and if you read it a certain way, I understand how you can do that. Make it sound as if God is just reaching down and tweaking uh, Pharaoh's volition so that he can't and won't uh, respond to God's uh, call for uh, for repentance. And yet, nothing in 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 the Exodus account that is dealing with the Pharaoh is related to his repentance to God for salvation. That's not what it's talking about at all. But we have to work our way through this because we have to understand how to read Exodus correctly and not to superimpose a theological framework on the text that isn't there. That's not the, that's not the point. So Isaiah 55, 6, and 7 emphasize the reality of personal volition and personal responsibility 
for each each individual. Now, in Romans 9.14, Paul is going to shift and transition to two more illustrations related to uh, related to God's uh, to God's sovereignty, and uh, we've already seen two. One related to the children of the promise and the children of the flesh in verses seven and eight, and the second had to do with Esau and Jacob. Uh, the third one is going to have to do with Moses. And what's interesting is if you read through a lot of the commentaries and a lot of discussion, they kind of ignore what's going on with Moses here. But this is an important part of understanding. The structure here, Moses is set over against Pharaoh. Moses, as a product or as the recipient of God's blessing, God's sovereign choice to bless Moses, not in salvation because Moses is already individually saved or justified, but in terms of how God is going to use Moses within God's plan and purposes. And then in contrast to that, we see the opposite way in which God takes someone who has already chosen to reject God and is already set in negative volition, and God is just going to sort of give him the courage of his convictions not to wimp out and to hang in there. That's what the hardening of the heart refers to in a nutshell. Now, we have to understand something about God. God is not a God who rejoices in the death of the wicked or the punishment of the unbeliever. It is God's desire that all are saved. We have an Old Testament passage that talks about this and a New Testament passage that talks about this. God is not a God who sits out there saying, any, meeny, miny, mo, I'm going to take this one to heaven and that one to hell, and then goes to the next group and then picks who's going to save and who he's going to send to hell. That's not the picture in Scripture. The picture in Scripture is not of this sort of arbitrary selection process, but that God has created a plan of salvation that provides an opportunity for each person to make a choice in relationship to God, and then they're held accountable for that. Ezekiel 18.23 says, uh, God is speaking, he says, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And the implication indicated by the Hebrew text is no. God takes no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die and not that he should turn from his ways and live? God has a plan offering to the wicked, to the unbeliever, a grace-based solution based on faith in God's promise of salvation in the Old Testament. It was a promise that was yet to be fulfilled, so they're anticipating a future deliverer known in the Old Testament as the Anointed One or the Messiah, the Mashiach. Once Jesus paid the penalty for sin, that's accomplished, the promise is fulfilled, and so from that point in on uh, the 14th of Nisan on the, on the Hebrew calendar, in A.D. 33, from that point to the present, we look back. The promise has specificity that only in the name of Jesus is there salvation, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's clear now. Now, in the New Testament, the same principle is stated of God's desire to save the lost. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is offering salvation to one and all. The issue is whether or not the individual will accept that and put their trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, let's go back to Romans 9. In Romans 9, starting in verse 14, uh, we read, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now, the way Paul sets up that question, the answer is no. In fact, he answers it's a rhetorical question. Is God unrighteous because he chooses one instead of another? Remember, I pointed out when the text says Esau I loved and Jacob, I mean, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, that's not a, a, a statement to be taken at face value. That's, it's a Hebrew idiom. Uh, when God said Jacob I loved, that means that's the one he, he selected for his plan. Jacob, I, I, I mean, Esau, I hated, that just means 
Esau wasn't the one he selected. God blessed Esau in many ways, but he didn't select Esau to be the one through whom the main line of the spiritual promise to Abraham would go. It's very similar to passage in, in Genesis chapter 29 when uh, 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 Jacob had married Leah, and then he dis- discovers that his father, new father-in-law deceived him and sent the wrong sister in. Uh, Leah was veiled, and so Jacob was tricked into thinking that he was getting the love of his life, Rachel, and instead he had Leah, and then he has to work off another seven years to get Rachel for his wife. And so the text says that that Rachel, he loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. Now, in the English, they usually translate that uh, Leah was unloved, but the Hebrew word there means to be hated. And it does. He he loved Leah, but he didn't love her like he loved Rachel. Rachel was the love of his life. Uh, it it just means that that uh, he he uh, Leah wasn't the one that he wanted or he desired. He wanted to marry Rachel. So this Hebrew idiom of uh, I, someone I loved and someone I hated is simply an idiom to express acceptance and rejection are the one who is loved and the other who is loved not quite as much. So when uh, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? No, this is all according to God's righteous standard. And he answers the question by saying, certainly not. Strongest way you can state that in Hebrew, I mean in Greek, no, not at all, never, uh, absolutely not. God is not unrighteous. For, and now he's going to give us an explanation in Romans 9.15. For he says to Moses, now this is going to take us back to Old Testament passage. And to understand this quote, we need to understand the context. And this is kind of a fun and interesting thing, and, and it really opens up the whole thing. Because if you just read this quote on face value, and the quote here is from Exodus thirty-three nineteen sounds as if God is just arbitrarily choosing who he's going to bless and who he's not going to bless. That, oh, I'm going to be gracious to you, but I'm not going to be gracious to you. As if God is just playing some sort of game in the heavens and just arbitrarily making these decisions on no basis whatsoever. So here's the quote. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. It is simply an assertion of God's right to uh, to, to show mercy and grace in terms of his plan the best way that it should be shown that he has the right to determine who, when, and how God is going to bestow his favors and that he has the right to do that because he's God. It's not a statement, even in the, go back to the context, has nothing at all to do with, sal- with salvation or justification. So let's go back and look at the original statement. It's part of a verse, Exodus thirty-three nineteen, And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. So he's talking to Moses. And God is saying to Moses, I'm going to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord to you. Now here's God saying, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord to you. What in the world does that mean? It means God is going to display his character, his essence before Moses. What a privilege Moses had. Not everybody got that. But he's he's not talking about getting saved. He's talking about demonstrating who he is, his essence to Moses. So I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. In other words, God's saying, I've chosen, I've made a decision at this point in time to reveal myself to you in this way. But I don't have to reveal myself in this way to everybody. And I'm choosing who I can reveal myself to at this point and who I won't. I have that right. I'll be, uh, and so that's the context of what he means by being gracious and showing compassion. But to truly understand this, we need to go back to the beginning of Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. So turn with me all the way back, second book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 32. And let's just kind of walk our way through this whole episode. Now, what's going on here 
in 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 the book of Exodus in the story of of the deliverance of, of Israel from from Egypt is that they've come to Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai probably isn't where most people think it is today, which is at the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. It's probably located much further north. Uh, and there's two or three other options for uh, where it might be, but that doesn't fit. The, the traditional site doesn't fit for a variety of reasons, but that's a totally different issue. They're there at Mount Sinai. They camp out there for a year. Three and a half million people camp out there for a year. God provides for them. You can just think of all the logistical issues of that many people out in the desert. You've got water issue. You've got sanitation issues. You've got uh, food issues. You've got all kinds of uh, clothing issues, all kinds of things. And they're camped out there. And for um, at the beginning, God speaks to them from the mountain. They say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We just we can't stand the voice of God. It's too much for us. Moses, you go up and talk to God on your own. So Moses goes up to talk to God on his own, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. This is what the movie The Ten Commandments portrays in quite a graphic, dramatic way. And while Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, and that's only the beginning of the law, he's getting the whole law, not just the Ten Commandments. He's getting the whole law, and while he's up there, all of a sudden he hears the noise of revelry and partying and orgy down below the mountain. And this is the scene here. Moses has been up there for quite a while. He's up there for 40 days, and the people get restless. They think, well, God's killed him. He's never coming back. Think about that, 40 days. Today is is August the uh, 29th. Uh, 40 days from now would be somewhere around, uh, what, October the 8th? Uh, that's, that's a long time. And uh, by then, and they don't know that he's coming back. See, we know he came back, but they don't know he's going to come back. After a while, it's like he's gone. He got lost. He fell in a hole. Uh, God consumed him. How do we know he's ever coming back? So they get restless. Now we read in verse 1, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Make us gods that we shall go before, that shall go before us. For, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not, not know what has become of him. He's gone. Make us a new god. We were following his god for a while and he did some great things, got us out of Egypt, but now we need a new God. His God destroyed him, and we need a new God, so make us an idol. And Aaron just succumbs to the pressure, and in verses 2 through 5, we get the description where he tells people to bring all of their gold jewelry to him, and he fashions a golden calf. And then we get one of the early examples of historical revisionism in verse 4, Politicians are always good at historical revisionism. And if you were watching um, watching the events yesterday in Washington, D.C., and they had some celebrations here in Houston over the, the 50th anniversary of the speech of Martin Luther King, Jr., which was, a, which was a great speech, Martin Luther King, Jr. had some fabulous establishment principles. But... and. and a lot of support from Republicans in the civil rights movement in the early 60s, but to hear the revisionism today, you would think that Republicans are racist, they're all a bunch of uh, Ku Klux Klansmen, and guess what? It was the Democrats who were the, you know, the authors of Jim Crow laws. It was the Democrats who were in the KKK. It was the Democrats that were anti-slavery. I think Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, and Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. But you listen to the talk today. In fact, it wasn't until the last minute, I guess, somebody said, you know, if we don't uh, invite some Republicans to this thing, uh, they're gonna, they're, we're going to get in a lot of trouble. So at the last minute, they invited a bunch of Republicans. But it was pretty obvious. No Republican president spoke yesterday. It was just three Democrats. And the one, uh, uh, the one senator who's black, Tim Scott from South Carolina, is a Republican, so he obviously wasn't allowed to speak. Uh, it, it just you see their historical revisions. This is so typical of people in power, and Aaron does the same thing. He points to this golden calf and he says, "This is the God who delivered you from Egypt." So he's rewriting history. So it's always important to understand the truth of history so that you're not duped by the media, duped by politicians, duped by anyone in power who tries to give you a re- redefined narrative so that you can follow their agenda instead of the truth. 
So Aaron comes up and says, this is your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So the people made a proclamation. They're going to have a feast in verse 6. They get up. They have burnt offerings and, and peace offerings to this to the golden calf, and they have a party. They have an orgy, and the uh, God says to Moses while he's up on the mountain, uh, you need to go down for your people are whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've just given, they've rejected the truth. They've rejected God and they're just giving themselves over to every lust pattern of their, of their sin nature. Uh, verse eight, they've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made a molded calf, worshiped it, sacrificed to it and claimed that this is the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord told Moses, I've seen this people. And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. So I have these these four central verses, seven through ten, up here on the board. And and this word here for for a stubborn people, a stiff-necked people, is one of the words that we'll see next time. Is is and a couple of places is the word that's translated hardened in in English. You keep running into this phrase: uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart as if they're all the same words in, in Hebrew, but there's actually three different words used in Hebrew, and one of them is this, the word that's used here. I'll bring that up in a, in a minute. So uh, they're related to these uh, statements, or, uh, like Exodus 7.3, God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Exodus 13.15, it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn. See, the word there is hardened his heart. Pharaoh was stubborn to, stubborn about letting us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. It's this word kasheh, which means just simply to be hard, stubborn, or obstinate. It's not the idea that God is freezing his will in place so that he won't do uh, anything other than what God is making him do. So in, in Exodus 32 here, we read that, that God is now going to um, going to bring uh, judgment against against Israel, and the Lord says to Moses, verse nine, "I've seen this people; it's a stubborn people. They've hardened their heart. They, they're resisting God. They're resisting truth. Now, therefore, God says to Moses in verse ten, leave me alone." that my wrath may burn against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Now, what do you think about that statement? God says, Moses, you just get out of the way and let me destroy all of them and then I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Now, we've got two options. Option one is that God is serious about this and he wants to destroy every single uh, Israelite there except for Moses. And from Moses, he's going to raise up a new people. Is God serious about that or is this a test? It's a test because if God did that, he would be breaking all of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with all the prophecies that he gave to, to uh, Jacob about the 12 sons of Jacob in, uh, in, in Genesis chapter 49 and everything that would come to pass. So he's testing Moses just like he tested Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, remember, God told Abraham to take the, his son, the promised seed, and to go sacrifice him. And it was a test to see if Abraham really trusted God. Now, we know from Hebrews that Abraham finally had understood that God was truly going to, going to give him a line of descendants through Isaac. And, that, and Abraham knew that even if he killed Isaac, God would just raise him up from the dead. So it was a test to see if Abraham really trusted God. God was not going to change his plan. It was a test to see if Abraham really trusted God and had finally come to trust God to fulfill his promises and his plans. See, all of this in Romans 9 is about God fulfilling his plan and promise to Abraham. It's not about individual salvation or individual justification. There's another episode in, in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 18, uh, verses 20 and 21, when God has come with two angels to visit Abraham and tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 20, the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether 
like God in his omniscience needs to go see if this really happened. God already knows it's what, what's going on. Um, and, and according to the outcry against that has come up to me, and if not, I will know. And then God says that he's going to kill everybody there. So that's another test for Abraham. And, and God knows that there's one righteous man, and that's Lot, in Sodom. But the test is, Abraham, are you going to be a blessing, and are you going to intercede on behalf of Lot? And, of course, Abraham pass, passes that test. So in both of these episodes, the one with Sodom and Gomorrah and the one with, with uh, Isaac and, and, and the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Abraham shows that he understands God's grace, that he understands God's righteousness, and he knows that God is not going to take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but in the turning back of the wicked, that he understands God's grace. Now, this is the same kind of thing going on here in Exodus chapter 32. God is testing Moses to see if Moses has understood the righteousness of God and his grace, and is, is Moses going to say, oh, yeah, great, that's, that's, that's great. Let's just, I, I'll just be the, the leader of the people, and, and I'll take that on. And Moses responds in true humility, and he stands as an intercessor for the people. So Moses, in verse 11, begins to plead with God. And notice how he does this. He, 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 first of all, he appeals to God's reputation in verse 11. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt and with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, well, look at God. He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. So the first thing is, God, if you do this, you know, it's, this is a bad testimony. Everybody's going to think you are just a willful, arbitrary God, and nobody's going to trust you. That's not a good idea. Second, he goes to the Abrahamic covenant, and he says, verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Israel is the other term for Jacob, other name for Jacob. Uh, remember Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, and then he cites the Abrahamic covenant. God, if you do this, you're going to violate your covenant. You can't do this. So the Lord relented. He's testing Moses to see if Moses is grace-oriented and if Moses has the humility and integrity to, to, to handle the leadership. So the Lord relents the harm that he would do to his people. But there's still an issue because they have violated God's command. So there has to be divine discipline. So Moses turns and goes down to the mountain takes the two tablets of the testimony that are in his hand. Uh, the tablets are written on both sides. It's probably two copies. That was standard in the ancient world. When a covenant's cut, you make two copies, one for one, and one person, the other gets deposited in the temple. In this case, both would be deposited in the tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse uh, 17, they go down. 18, uh, Joshua come, is waiting on Moses up on the mountain, and they hear the sound of uh, what they think is war, but it's the sound of, of uh, a partying. And as they came near the camp, Moses' anger became hot, and he throws down the tablets and they break. And he takes the, the calf and he, he melts it in the fire, grinds it up into powder, scatters it in the water, and makes the children of Israel drink it. Now, Moses is executing divine judgment here. He's angry, but he ne he, he's not rebuked for this. He is executing as a prophet, as a leader of the people. He's executing judgment on them for their disobedience. And Moses then accuses Aaron in verse 21, what did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, well, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. These, these people are bad. You know, they're just bad to the bone. And you know you can't trust them. And you went away for 40 days. Subtext, it's really your fault, Moses. You're gone too long. And they came along and pressured me into making this. And so, verse 25, when Moses saw the people were unrestrained, then, verse 26, he stood in the entrance of the camp, called upon those who were loyal to the Lord, and all the Levites gathered to Moses. And then he gives them orders to, thus says the Lord God of Israel. See, this is divine judgment on the people, uh, discipline at this point. Verse 27, let every man put his sword on his side, go in and out of the entrance to entrance throughout the camp. He's telling the Levites this. This is the role of the priest. Go uh, kill everyone 
who was in rebellion against God. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. They were executed because of their, their sinful rebellion against God. And then Moses called upon them to consecrate themselves to the Lord. That, underline that, verse 29, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother. You guys stood up for the truth, and God is going to, uh, to bless you, but first you have to uh, sanctify yourself. So then the, pe- the people gathered the next day in verse 30, and Moses says, you've committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Okay, so there's been this great sin. Then there's been this execution of divine judgment, which led to the execution of 3,000 people. And then Moses has the, 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 the nation, all the people, sanctify themselves, and he's going to go intercede for them before God. And verse verse 33, God says, um, or verse 32, Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, that's his appeal to God. These people have committed a great sin. If you will forgive their sin, uh, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Don't destroy them as a nation, but, but take me in their place. That's Moses' humility. Take me in their place. And Moses said, Whosoever, uh, God says to him in verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people uh, to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel will go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. Okay, what's the point of all this? Is that God is saying that part of the punishment is that he is not going to personally go with Israel when they go to the land, he's going to instead send his angel to lead them, but God's not. They're going to miss out on part of the blessing they could have had in terms of this personal fellowship with God because of their sin. Sin damaged their relationship with God. Now, it's important to understand that God is really uh, has, has really brought down the judgment upon Israel and is removing himself from fellowship with Israel because of their sin. And they're going to go to plan B, which his his angel is going to lead them. Then the Lord says to Moses, now depart from here and head to the promised land, basically, um, and and you're going to go to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's still there. No matter what they did, they still get the promise. The promise of the land isn't, uh, of getting the land eventually, isn't conditioned upon their obedience or disobedience. I'll send my angel before you. I'll drive out the Canaanite, Hivite, blah, blah, blah. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go in your midst. This is the key thought, verse 3. For I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God's point is, because you sin this sin, you're going to get less less blessing, less fellowship with me. I'm not going to travel with you. Because if I do, I'm going to have to consume all of you because you violated my righteousness so badly. When the people heard that, and that bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. They're sad. They're not, in other words, they're not going to dress up. They're just wearing their, their, their mourning clothes. And when, and, uh, verse five, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, your stiff necked people, note the repetition we get here, uh, I could, uh, I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. We're repeating this idea that they have violated God's standards so much that if God came as he had intended, now because of their sin, he would just consume all of them. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments by Mount Horeb. Now, Moses meets with the Lord, verse 7. See, all of this is just to get us to verse 11 to 13. But you can't understand why God says the statement he makes about, I will have compassion, I mean, I have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and compassion on whom I compassion, if you don't understand the context in which he's saying it. He's not talking about getting them justified or saved. They're already justified and saved. That's already clear. Moses is already justified. Aaron's already justified. 
The issue isn't getting into heaven as their eternal destiny. The issue is their personal walk with God. And so Moses took his tent, pitched it outside of the camp, far from the camp, verse 7, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. This is before they build the tabernacle. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which is outside the camp. So it was that whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into this tabernacle where he's going to meet with God. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at that tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So everybody standing there watching Moses go off out into the wilderness, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred yards away from the camp where they can barely see what's going on. But they see the pillar of fire there and the cloud, and they see Moses go into the tent. And everybody stands there solemnly and respectfully and prayerfully while Moses is in there talking with God. In verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses. Let me put that up on the screen. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face. Now, this phrase is important because it indicates an intimacy, a friendship, a fellowship level that God had with Moses and Moses with God that is that is beyond anything we see in the Scripture outside of maybe Enoch early on, earlier on in, in Genesis. Uh, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Mo, then it says that he would return to the camp. Afterwards, Moses would come back to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So it shows his devotion of Joshua. Joshua would stay out there by the tabernacle. Then in verse 12, Then Moses said to the Lord while they're meeting, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. So what's going on here is... is um, Moses is uh, reminding God of his past promise to guide and direct Israel and his love for and his grace to the people. And Moses is arguing to the Lord that the Lord would reveal himself uh, to all the people. And what's interesting as you go through this section, and you really see this starting in about verse 14, that Moses seems to be saying, God, you need to come into the presence of the people. And Moses is talking about God's presence with all the people. But what God keeps saying, it keeps talking in terms of just his appearance to Moses individually. In verse, um, what do we have up here? Uh, 13, Moses says to the Lord, you say to me, bring up this people. But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name. See, God is talking to Moses individually. I know you by name. You've found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, Moses says, verse 13, I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Demonstrate your love for this people that you're going to be faithful to your word. That's what Moses, what chutzpah. Uh, he's, he's arguing, God, be faithful to your word and give me evidence that you're going to continue to bless the nation and fulfill the promise. And God says to Moses in verse 14, my presence will go, uh, will go with you. It's kind of an odd construction, but it's a second person plural ending there. So it's talking about the people and I will give you singular rest. And then in verse 15, then he said to him, Moses says to God, if your present does not go with us, see Moses is saying, you need to go with the whole, the whole group here, Lord. If your present does not go with us, don't bring us up from here. You need to be part of it. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight unless you go with us? See, he's trying to argue God out of this conclusion that God's not going to go with him. And in verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And this is God's response in verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you, singular, not before the whole nation, but just you. And my goodness will pass before you, 
And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will demonstrate my character before you, Moses, alone. You see, Moses, you may think that the way to blessing for this nation is for me to go back to plan A and travel with the people. But if I do that, I'm going to consume them. I'm the sovereign God who understands all the facts. I know all the details. You can trust me to make the right decision. And I'm not going to go with them because I reserve the right to bless whom I will bless. And I'm going to choose to bless you by revealing this much of myself to you. And I have the right to be, have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You can't dictate to me what the best way for my plan to work itself out is. I have that right to do that because I'm the sovereign God who knows all the facts. So God is going to restrict how he comes into the presence of his people. And there's going to be a compromise here because, in a sense, he's going to go with the people because he's going to, but he's going to remain within the confounds of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, and he's not going to be with the presence of the people as a whole. So what God means by all of this is that that because in his righteousness and justice, because he's a holy God, he can't do what he initially intended to do, which was to have a greater presence within the, all of the people. But he's going to restrict it, and he, can, he has the right to do this because he knows all the facts. And he, he is the one who determines the best way to fulfill his plan and to answer Moses' prayer. So what we see here is that because only God knows the overall strategy and the overall goal, he has the right to determine how he's going to work out his plan and his purpose. Though individuals are involved in this episode, the issue is not their eternal destiny or justification, but how and when and under what circumstances God is going to bless people in time. Nothing in the passage, either here or with Pharaoh, Nothing in the passage relates to the eternal destiny of Moses or the eternal destiny of Pharaoh. The issue in both of these illustrations, this one from Moses and the one we'll look at next week with Pharaoh, is God has a plan for Israel, and they are God's chosen nation, and he's the one who has the right to determine how he is going to bless them and under what circumstances. So the conclusion from all of this is that is in Romans 9:16 so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs but of God who shows mercy it's not dependent the, the on on Israel it's not dependent on Moses what Moses willed or on Pharaoh's opposition uh, it's not dependent on their how they will or how they run but it's dependent upon God who oversees history and will bring about the conclusion that he has intended And so that helps us work our way through this first part of Romans 9 up through verse 16. And then we're going to see the next uh, explanation. In verse 17, it starts with that same explanatory word, for the Scripture says. And so it's the second illustration related to Pharaoh. So it's an easy point, but, but this idea that when God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I compassion, don't just rip that out of context and say, well, that just means that God's arbitrarily going to choose uh, who's going to get saved and who's not. He's not even talking about that. He's talking about he is the one who chooses the outworking of blessing in history, and he reserves the right to be able to choose how and when and under what circumstances he's going to work out our, his plan. And for application for us, that means that when we come to the Lord in prayer, God is the one who determines how he's going to answer it, when he's going to answer it, and under what circumstances he's going to answer it. And he knows all the facts. He knows all the details. He knows everything that's going on. He has all the data under control. And he's going to work out the plan and bless us in the right time and the right way because he's trustworthy. And so we can trust him to work things out the right way because of his character. Father, we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us, forcing us to go back into your word, to think things through, to understand the context, to work through the details of the text so that we can fully understand what you've revealed to us. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand 
the point of this, these passages we've studied, that the issue is not salvation. The issue is how you're going to work out your plan in history and whom you will bless and under what circumstances uh, that you will bless and how you will bring about your plan. And that arena is reserved to you. But you leave salvation up to us. It's our responsibility to accept or reject your offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and they might encourage us and strengthen us in our trust and faith in our daily walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.